I'm doing a one-two, but kind of sliding that left foot. Sorry, I don't know how good that is for a podcast, what, what I was just doing. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> for those listening, Luke just got up and gave yeah. us a visual demonstration. That <laughs> just was flipped the screen on the chair. And that's the first <laughs> yeah. on the podcast, Luke. That yeah, was good. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a visual <laughs> learner, man. So that's how I learned. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome power forward for Germany's Alba Berlin, Luke Sigma. Luke is here today to discuss understanding and carving out a role, the art of post-passing, handling double teams, and we talk flipping screens and late game timeouts during the always fun start, sub, or sit. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to both the podcast and our Sunday morning newsletter, where you can access weekly detailed tactical breakdowns and find out more about SG+, a resource and community members are calling the best platform to learn, grow, and connect with other coaches. Visit slappingglass.com for more information today. We hope to see you there. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Luke Sigma. Luke, thanks so much for making the time to come talk to us. I know you're in the middle of a busy season, so thanks for spending some time with us. I appreciate you guys having me on. Honestly, pretty honored to be on here. Thank you. Appreciate that. And we're honored to have you. We're going to get into a, a lot of on the court and off the court stuff today with you and your terrific we know at both. We want to start kind of more off the court with you and talk about role definition, role clarification over the course of your career. And you've obviously been someone from college to now having a really successful pro career of you've had different roles on teams and I'm sure you've had coaches that have helped you clarify that role. And so at what point in your career did you start to figure out how you can fit into a role for a team and maximize your value to that team? I guess it kind of all starts for me is I'm always thinking, okay, how A, can I get on the court? You know, any player wants to play. So A, how can I be on the court and how can I be effective in that role that I have? And obviously that changes from team to team, from year to year. Obviously it depends on how you progressed as a player, you know, and a lot depends on the coaches as well. You know, I've been very lucky to have some coaches that have, you know, I think would give me a little bit more leeway in terms of the things I can do. And they're okay with me making some mistakes, not only me, but my teammates, because, you know, that's, they understand that's part of the learning process. So, you know, I think it honestly would start in, in high school. You know, my first, I was kind of a late bloomer, didn't play varsity until my last two years. And we got a new coach my senior year, Chris O'Connor, who played in college, was this NBA scout for a while. You know, the first day he came in, you know, I sat down with him. He said, Luke, look, I think obviously you're the team's best player. I don't know if he said obviously, but, you know, I was thinking that in my head. But (laughs) he said, yeah, Luke, he said best player. And he said, I have a belief that, you know, the best player has to be the hardest worker. And that was just kind of, you know, really hit home for me. So that was kind of a big part of what I tried to base my career off of is to try and improve year after year after year. Even now, you know, at 32, I'm still trying to work on certain things in my game. You know, he allowed me to play from the high post in high school. I was a five back then, but, you know, kind of similar to what, you know, we do here at Alba is playing from the high post and having cutters and being able to play make a little bit and being able to handle the ball a little bit. So I was very lucky to have him as, you know, my coach early in my career and then going through college, obviously college, you get in as a freshman and luckily, you know, I played a lot as a freshman, but I kind of kept it simple and was a really good rebounder, you know, as a freshman and knew that was my way onto the court. And so tried to do that consistently. And year after year, you know, expanded my offensive game, shooting more threes. And then once I had the time to go play and professionally in Spain and second division team, I got there and my coach, who's actually our player development coach here at Alba, he was my head coach my first year in Spain and in La Palma, Carlos Frade. And I always joke with him now that, you know, he told me, okay, you're a five and you're going to be a pick and roll player. You're not going to pop. I don't really want you shooting threes. I don't know if he said it in in such words, but he says, I think you're much better kind of rolling to the hoop. And, you know, at that point, it's like whatever I have to do to get on the court. So, you know, my first two years in second division Spain, I was playing, you know, strictly the five. And then when I moved up to the ACB, I had a coach in Alejandro Martinez in Tenerife, who from the first day of practice, you know, I was shooting like elbow jumpers. And he said, no, Luke, I want you shooting threes. 
you're going to play kind of like four or five. We honestly don't really have a four and five set position. You know, it's just kind of two bigs and go ahead, shoot threes, practice. I want you shooting. You know, we weren't a great defensive team, but offensively could really score some points and really encouraged me to expand my game. And from there, went to Valencia and, you know, had a great coach in Pedro Martinez there. And I think he really valued a lot of, you know, the small things I did on the court, which allowed me to to get a lot of playing time. And there was a little bit different because we had, you know, kind of some clear scores in terms of Boyan Dublovic, who's, you know, still one of the best big men in Europe. I realized that I could find a good role in feeding him the ball because in low post, he was so dangerous. You know, he could also spread it out to the three-point line as a five, which is so tough to guard. That was a little bit, you know, different role than what I'd had previously, but it's, you know, something I tried to excel in and just bring energy every game. And, you know, I wasn't playing as much minutes as I am here in Alba. You know, we had some good four men with us, John Sherna, Will Thomas. I had 20 minutes and I was like, okay, I'm going to bring the energy. I'm going to make sure, you know, our bigs get involved take the shot when I'm open and make sure I go to the offensive rebound and defensive rebound every single time. Kind of kept it simple and it, you know, led us to a Spanish league championship, you know, five finals, I think. And then I got here to Alba. I had, you know, Aito, who obviously has been so great for my career, really encouraged me to be more of a playmaker, immediately put in sets with me at the high post. And the thing is when you give the big, the ball to make plays, you know, it, it takes some time to get the smalls convinced that, you know, if they cut, if they move, I'll be able to find them. So there was a learning curve there, especially with such a young team. But I think, you know, they quickly found the trust in me to do that. And, you know, we play a pretty unique style and not so much, you know, one-on-one and dribbling, but gaining our advantage off passes and cutting and running the fast break. So that's been great. So again, it's kind of year to year. I've tried to add something, obviously depends on the team, but, you know, really just not being satisfied with my game at any point and trying to improve in, in certain things. And that's both on the court and off the court trying to become a better leader. I remember there was a couple summers, you know, when you're coming out of college, you know, you can eat whatever in the summertime and you're still coming back, you know, you don't put any pounds on, but I remember a summer too where that changed. <laughs> don't think I took as much care of myself and, you know, really kind of tried to change my approach that way and, and making sure I stay in shape in the summer. It's much easier to stay in shape in the summer than get out of it and get back in it again. And especially now with how short a summer we have with EuroLeague and ending in the end of June and there's so many different things you can improve on. You know, it's not just, okay, I got to shoot 5% better from three, you know, next year or better from the free throw line or get one more rebound per game. But it's, there's so many little things that can add up and really give you confidence as a player. Luke, hearing you kind of talk and go through your different stops and finding roles, what were the conversations or were there conversations with the coaches that allowed you to find your role quicker on each team and at each stop and get you on the floor? I think there definitely was. I always want to have a good relationship with the coach and not to be, excuse my French, not to be a kiss ass, but just, (laughs) you know, because I think it's important if you're an important player to kind of be on the same page, you know, you don't have to like the coach. You got to respect them. The coach respects you if you try and do what he wants you to do. And most of the times it's right. I know players like to think it's always going to be wrong, but you know, coaches are coaches for a reason. They, they most of the time know what they're doing. So I mean, my high school coach, Chris O'Connor, that having that first conversation with him when I remember we were in the school library and all the players and parents came out to meet him and, he talked about it. And afterwards he said, here, Luke, let's talk for a minute. And, you know, he put his expectations down and, you know, I'm a guy that I need to see kind of like a goal or a finish line. You know, I hate, you know, workouts where it's, they don't say, okay, you need to make this out of this, or you need this many reps in the weight room. It's just kind of, yeah, just try and do this. No, I need a finish line. Cause then I can kind of measure my progress. Okay. So with, you know, Chris, he said, you need to be the hardest worker. And I remember he told me we would always force you right when we played against you last year when he was on another coach. And so he said, you need to be able to develop your left hand. And I said, okay, great. You know, tried to work on that every year and every day in practice. And, you know, obviously Alejandro Martinez in Tenerife just telling me, look, I want you to expand your game, which, you know, in ACB Spain is, it's not a common thing. That's a pretty high level basketball. And they kind of want you to come in and do what you do, but to have a coach that's, you know, pushing you to grow as a player was huge. And looking back, really appreciate that. You know, Pedro Martinez was, he came in and I remember I had some teammates in Tenerife that had played for Pedro before. And I texted him, I said, Hey, look, you know, what do I expect with Pedro? He goes, look, you want to get in this good graces, be the first in line in, in every drill, you know, be energetic, be a good teammate, always be listening, yeah. you know, which is stuff, you know, I would do normally, but it was good to kind of get that reinforcement and emphasis. And, and then I remember I sat down and had a talk with him and he said, I could speak Spanish. And he said, you know, I know from the previous teams, there's an issue where, you know, it was the Balkan guys kind of were in a group. The Spanish guys were in a group. The foreigners were in a group and they couldn't really gel together. I remember he pointed out me and Sam Van Rossum, who also was a Belgian guy, but, you know, spoke Spanish and great guy and great teammate. He said, I really 
think it's important for you guys to kind of bring the team together. And so that was kind of the first time that, you know, a coach talked to me about the off-court leadership stuff. And so tried to make a point of that, you know, for the two years I was there, there was a little bit of, you know, like any coach, there's, okay, we want you to do a little bit more of this, more of that. But in terms of like that initial talk, that's really what he talked about. And with Aito, honestly, there wasn't really that conversation. You know, if anyone's played for Aito or knows him or heard about him, you know, he's a little different in, in how he goes about things. Obviously, you know, his record speaks for himself, but he just has so good at seeing the big picture that before I knew it, I was kind of in that role as a playmaker. There was no explicit conversation or anything like that. But at that point, I could really see what he wanted. And obviously very encouraging for me because, you know, to have the ability to have the ball in my hands a little bit more and create for my teammates was something I've you know always loved to do so yeah. just kind of took that and ran without any explicit conversation but you know sometimes it happens sometimes it doesn't but you know if it does you know if a coach has that conversation with you it means something's important so you should definitely mm-hmm. definitely listen Luke I'm wondering I mean you have a maturity about you obviously that I'm sure at certain points in your career you've had roles or potential roles on a team where you felt like maybe you could do more but the coach was not wanting you or asking you to do that And I guess how you reacted or what your thoughts were during that time to expand your role or just say, hey, you know what? I want to stay on the floor. I'm just going to stick to what I'm doing. That's a good question. You know, I have an incredible resource in my dad in that, you know, he's not part of these teams that I'm playing for, but he knows basketball so well and he watches the games. And, you know, he was a coach for a long time. And I remember going to practices when he was coaching for the Sonics or the Rockets. And I always just thought the atmosphere and, and, you know, those are true pros that you see you know, going in. And at that time I was in high school, college, but to be able to, you know, see how those guys operate, how important even that seventh, eighth, ninth, 10th guy on the bench is and how, you know, it's not every game that they'll score 20, but there may be that one game when one guy's hurt and they need to step up. And that's just a testament to, you know, the work they put in when no one's watching. I had that resource. And even when there's times where I was frustrated, you know, I could go talk to him but just to try and be consistent in everything you do. Because I think as a player, if you can be consistent, your coach knows what to expect out of you. Your teammates know what to expect out of you. That makes you dependable. It makes it easy for your teammates and your coaches because they know, okay, if Luke's going in, he's going to crash the offensive glass. He's going to run the floor. You know, he's going to be positive with his teammates. You know, from there, you earn the respect, you earn your time. And, you know, there's opportunities that present itself. If someone gets hurt, you know, the team doesn't think you can shoot. So they're giving you, you know, open looks and you got to shoot them. And when you make, you know, two, three in a game and all of a sudden, you know, the coach thinks, oh, Luke can, you know, make those threes or he can do this or can do that. So it's a little bit of, you know, being consistent. And also when the opportunity presents itself is kind of seizing that takes a lot of patience. But if you believe in yourself and you put in the work, it'll eventually happen for you. Luke, you've mentioned it a couple of times just with your role and becoming a leader and being positive with guys. You know, I'd like to ask you about, I mean, leadership, but specifically peer leadership. And I don't know if it's easier, but, you know, when you're addressing a younger guy or, a, you know, a rookie, how it can probably be a little bit easier to give him guidance to lead him. But when it's a teammate who's the same age or has similar experiences, how do you approach leadership with him? You know, I'm the old head here at Albo with 32 years old. Everyone else is like, <laughs> well, not so much this year, but everyone else is, you know, early 20s. So that makes it a little bit easier. But, you know, I'm a positive person and I always like to edge on the side of kind of empowering your teammates. You know, it's not like, hey, you should have been here because I won't ask them to do anything that, you know, the coaches haven't asked them to do that, you know, isn't part of the game plan. I think it's important in how you approach it in terms of, you know, I'm not someone that says you need to make this back cut. It's more of like, hey, you know, you know that if your guy helps off, that back cut's going to be open, right? So it kind of makes them like gives them the responsibility. It, it shows that they know what to do. And and you're just kind of reemphasizing, hey, like, let's do that. You know what it is to do. You're not chastising them. You're not putting them down. It's kind of challenging them, but in a positive way in terms of giving them the responsibility that they know what to do and assuming that they know how to do it. And I think that's a much better way to go about it than just, you know, being a teammate that kind of curses them out or only cheers them on yeah. when they do something good. Or And I think that comes also from earning the respect of those players. If you're a guy in there, you know, battling every day and doing the things right, and they realize that, you know, you're not a selfish person, I think it's hard to kind of take advice from a selfish, a selfish person, a selfish player. If they know that what they want you to do is for the good of the team, is for the good of, you know, I'm doing it because it'll make my teammate better and it'll help them and it helps them, it helps the team. So I think it's important in, in how you approach it and how you frame it. And again, I think it a lot just comes from the respect and that's something that you earn, you know, day in, day out in practice. With the positivity, Luke, has that always been your approach? Has that just been your personality or did it take you a while to 
kind of get there to see that you can get better results by just being positive and framing it in a positive light than coming in negative or being hard. Yeah, that's definitely been an evolution. Well, first off, I'm a pretty positive person as is, you know, kind of the eternal optimist. And, you know, I kind of love playing the underdog, love, you know, kind of the us against the world type, you know, attitude, which works out great for here at Alba, you know, competing in the EuroLeague as one of the younger, you know, smaller budget teams. But that definitely progressed. I used to be way more of a kind of like yelling at a guy. And a lot of that came from my own frustration or, you know, my own fatigue in the game. And not realizing that that can influence and in how I approach teammates. I think I've gotten a lot better at it recent seasons because started working with our sports psychologist, Renata, here in Alba. And she's been great for me in terms of realizing, not to get all like scientific, but like how my brain works and how, you know, I approach certain things and where my frustration comes from and realizing you got to have the patience for some time, you know, for some guys, you know, some things come faster to others. Some guys are doing things for different reasons, you know, where I might think it's to spite me. It's not because of that. It's because they're doing it because A, they don't know. B, you know, they're thinking more about, you know, not to get so general, but more yeah. of thinking about something else. So, you know, obviously it comes with experience. I've just realized like the positivity is so much more helpful in the long run. And not only that, it, it you know, if you stay positive, you feel better, your teammates respond so much better to you. You know, I think everyone plays better. I think everyone responds not everyone, but most people respond better to positivity. And I realize how hard we are as professional athletes on ourselves already. So, you know, I know I'm really hard on myself. And so that's when, when someone, you know, then is hard on me, I kind of double the, you know, the ridicule and that doesn't do good for anybody. So if you can kind of build that person up and maybe get them out of their own head or whatever it is, it just in the long run, it's so much better. It's mental health. I mean, and I think the mental health obviously manifests itself physically. So, you know, it's way more fun to do everything with a smile on your face and in a positive manner. So that wasn't like that from the start, but it's been a definite process, something I've improved on over the years. Luke, you brought it up and I think it's an interesting point. I'd love to just ask you about the sports psychologists. And I know that more and more teams are trying to have even, you know, lower levels too, trying to have someone on the staff that kind of assists in those kinds of things. Just wondering what has been the biggest benefit of having someone like that as part of the staff, whether it's, you know, just getting things off your chest, you know, talking about your role or life stuff. I mean, what's really been the biggest value for you? More than anything, it's having someone just to talk to. You know, it seems simple, but, and someone kind of, you know, part of the team, but outside the team. And especially a professional like sports psychologist, they know the biggest part of their job is just listening. And I mean, the amount of times where I'm frustrated about something and I just talked with Renata about it and afterwards I already feel better without having done anything or talking, you know, like making a decision or whatever, you know, you think you may have to do, you already feel better about it. You know, it's such a high stress job. And honestly, it was huge that I started working with her at the start of last season. So the kind of major COVID season when there's no fans, you know, in Germany, we're on lockdown and, you know, you can't go out and, and do the things you usually do to disconnect and you're stuck at home in your apartment with your thoughts. And so to have someone that kind of gets you out of your own head or lets you kind of even just vent was so big for me. And, you know, I wasn't a huge believer in it prior to, mm. uh, to be honest, but, you know, I had kind of some off the court stuff that I thought would be good to talk about that, you know, Renata's great with only basketball stuff, but off the court stuff as well. So went to her at first with that and it kind of talked about that, but also started delving into the basketball stuff and saw how much it helped and how much, you know, improved me as a leader, as a teammate, you know, just to kind of help limit the stress has been huge. Hey coaches, we'd like to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor Instat. They have been hands down the biggest resource we've used in generating our content. Their expansive database of over 30,000 players and 7,000 teams gives us the access we need to scout notice trends, and learn from some of the best coaches in the game today. So join coaches of all levels who are using Instat to better prepare for their opponents, self-scout, and develop their players. By going to instatsport.com form and entering the promo code SGPOD, coaches can receive one free month of Instat Scout and 10% off their subscription. That's SGPOD at instatsport.com form. Thanks again to Instat for their support. And now back to our conversation. We want to transition now into another area of your game that we're really excited to pick your brain about, and that's passing. And I know it's something that I know you love to do. Is it that obvious? <laughs> <laughs> 
we wanted to kind of narrow down a little bit into post passing and passing out of you know the elbow high post or the low post. And how did you develop your sense and your savviness to be such an elite passer from the post areas? I mean, it's hard to point to one thing, but you know, growing up, like I said, I was a late bloomer in high school. So I was always kind of middle of the road in terms of height. So I was never playing the big position. I was more of kind of a three. And so you're handling the ball a little bit more and maybe seeing passes. But, you know, I think a lot of it came with, I just love to play five on five. I'm not going to lie. I'm not a big working on like one on O dribble moves or anything like that. Like if I want to go in the off season and play, I want to go play five on five just because I like the competitive aspect. I think just the whole five on five game is so much more fun and enjoyable and it makes it a lot easier to go work out when you're enjoying it. But, you know, whether it was playing with friends, playing in, you know, in the backyard or in the driveway with friends, going to hoop with, you know, the old heads, you know, on Saturday mornings at the, you know, the BAC, the Bellevue Athletic Club, you know, I just love to go play and passing was something that can't really point to a certain point, but you know, I just really got a lot of enjoyment about finding my teammates. I think it's such a great way to gain an advantage without being the fastest guy, the biggest guy, you know, the best shooter. It's such a unique way to gain an advantage. And, you know, seeing now it's so tough to kind of scout or, or play against, move the ball so much faster and so much, you know, more fun to watch, I think, you know, as a fan. So Chris O'Connor, my coach in my senior year of high school, who you know, encouraged me from the high post, it was kind of like a four round one, you know, four outside with, you know, me on the high post and guys cutting off me, you know, scissor action or, or whatever it is. And I had the opportunity to kind of dive to the low post whenever I needed it. And I had, you know, teammates who also happened to be, you know, my best friends in high school who knew to cut off of me and were good finishers and, and a good size. So it was always fun to kind of feed them and at that point, I kind of knew I had an ability to pass in college. The system we ran, I, I would do some passing out of the high post, but it was kind of a simple, a lot like the sideline out of bounds we do, where it's just kind of the flex cut with me at the high post. It wasn't as much of the other stuff as we do at, at Alba, but still had that opportunity. And, and then my first year, even as a five man, Carlos, even though he told me not to shoot threes, he you know let me bring it out on the break a little bit. We kind of ran some triangle concepts that, you know, was me in the short roll or knowing a guy was cutting or playing the backside back door, you know, I think the blind pig or yeah. whatever it's called. Um, some, some of those situations, you know, in Tenerife, we were very free flowing. We didn't play much defense, but, uh, <laughs> you know, on offense, it was, if you get a good shot, two seconds in the shot clock, shoot it. Cause you know, coach would say, you don't know if you're going to get a better shot later on. And I had some guys who could shoot it you know, guys who could get out and run the floor. And I think it's kind of a, you know, one builds on top of the other. If, you know, me as a passer keeps finding a guy open for threes, that guy's going to move even more to mm -hmm. try and get open because he knows I'm going to find him. And it just kind of keeps going like that. So, you know, that improved a lot. Valencia, Pedro, I think understood my value as a passer. I would take it, you know, underneath the basket, the baseline out of bounds. And we kind of had an open kind of just playing concepts out of the baseline. He said, you know, when Luke's on the court, he always takes it out of bounds, which I think I've had this not so much an issue, but I understand, you know, for a point guard to have the coach say, Hey, you know, you're not the best passer. We don't want you taking the ball out or making the decision. We want the big guy. It's tough, you know, and I understand, you know, it's like, so I, I've been lucky to have teammates that didn't really have problems with that. And then I got here with Taito and he got the ball to me in the high post a lot, in the low post, and, you know, passing is just something you learn. It's hard to drill, to be honest. It's something you got to learn out of just playing. And unfortunately you got to learn out of making turnovers. I've made a lot of that. I think that was the only stat I was top five in EuroLeague last year was turnovers. So it's still something I'm working on, but you know, you got to be willing to make the mistakes to learn. And for me, it just comes down to kind of making the right play. If there's a guy cutting that's going to be open for a layup, that's your best option, you know, or a wide open three for Marcus Erickson. Like, yeah, that's the play you want to make. And to be able to realize that and not do it with the selfish mindset of, okay, I want to get the assist, but you know, you talk about the hockey assist or whatever you want, but find the open man. And more often than not, good things are going to happen. Luke, hearing you talk about the value of you being a passer, and then obviously teams know the value. How does that start to maybe manipulate the defenses that you're saying? Or when they know it's like, we have to know where Luke is because he can find anyone at any moment. You know, what do you start seeing in terms of defense and how they approach defending your passing ability? I think the most obvious thing is the on-ball pressure. You know, as a foreman, you're not getting a lot of kind of in your jock defense, but when they know that you're looking to make a play, you know, out of the high post, teams start to pressure a lot more. So that's something I've had to adjust to, you know, in recent years and in, in learning how to, you know, if the guy's really pressuring to rip through an attack and whether it's draw foul or, or get to the rim or, you know, create an advantage that way. If I'm penetrating, they know more often than not, I'm probably going to pass it. So it's more of a fake help 
and getting back, you know, that's forced me to be a little bit more aggressive coming downhill, realizing that teams are going to realize I'm going to try and pass it. That's something that's, you know, I've been adjusting to for sure. And you realize that, you know, it's not going to be, you're going to pass nine times out of 10 to make those passes work. Now you got to be more aggressive. You may have to shoot it five times out of 10 and, and those other five will be, you know, more open passes. You got to keep the defense honest. And those are kind of the biggest things I've seen. Luke, one thing, you know, when we watch you play that you particularly seem to have a knack for is making passes while you're attacking. So not so much you catch on the elbow, you find a cutter, but like when you decide to rip, get to the rim, and then you can pass it late and find your partner or find a, a weak side shooter. And I'm wondering about that because that's a very high level, difficult skill to acquire where you're able to make a, a really late decision, almost like where you're decelerating as you're attacking to find them. I'm wondering about that specific part of your game and how that developed. I don't know, to be honest. I feel bad because a lot of the passing stuff kind of comes natural. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't come natural. It's, this has come from you know years of playing, but it's hard to kind of put it into words. But when you talk about in terms of slowing down at the point of attack, that's mostly because I'm not going to be faster than a lot of guys, you know? So you kind of <laughs> got to go the other way in terms of making those last, you know, those yeah. kind of zero, one, two steps, as they call, to make those a little bit slower and maybe have the guy fly by you or make that guy either if he was going to fake, now he's really got to commit and then you can dump it off. But I think it's just the best time to pass, to be honest. Because if you go, you know, to the rim and the guy, you know, chests up and, and you don't have the pass, then the rest of the defense sees that or you don't have the shot, the rest of the defense is going to see that too. So they're going to suck back up on their guy. So I think when the defense starts to come to the help, you know, and they're moving towards you, if you can pass that at that time, you know, that's a whole nother step. They got to change direction and, and they're one step closer to you. And so it's finding guys. And a lot of it, I, I have to, you know, credit my coaches and the schemes we run too, because we play a lot of, you know, concepts where if a guy's driving baseline, we need a guy filling the opposite baseline, you know, the opposite baseline corner. Or, mm -hmm. you know, we play the circles where if I'm low post and I spin baseline, I know my five man's going to flash middle of the paint. And so like, you've guys probably seen a couple of kind of like my over the head passes, you know, big to big in the paint. Yeah. I'd like to say it's old, you know, I got eyes in the back of my head, but it's not. It's a trusting my teammate that he's going to be there because that's, you know, what we practice so many times during the year. So that's the biggest thing. And, and just kind of trusting and knowing he's going to be there because if I see the five men come help when I go middle, my guy's got to be open under the rim. And so sometimes it's throwing it when they're not expecting. And especially, you know, you got to pass when the defense isn't ready to defend the pass, right? So, right. you know, when they're taking a step to come help, they're not going to come really with their hands up, you know, in this paint or whatever you want to call it. So you kind of got to get it out early and sometimes throw it to a spot and trust that your teammates are going to be there. I'm a big in terms of whether it's back doors or, you know, throwing to shooters, it's kind of throwing to a spot and leading your teammate to get there a little bit. And sometimes you have to adjust the speed with which you throw it. You can't just rifle one to a spot that your guy's not there, right? So maybe you got to put a little backspin on it or take a little something off it or throw a bounce so that they can get there. But I think that's the best time because your defense is even for half a second committing to you. And that's when you kind of have that advantage. During these situations, and you mentioned it, I mean, passing when they're coming to you, but also being a threat to score, where does your vision then kind of lie as you start to make the move? Do you just have an awareness because like you said, the concepts, so you're focused on the rim or are you reading the help? That's a great question. And again, I don't know, like I think back in the game and I try and like, if you see pictures, like the still pictures of me during a game, you see my face is always like, you know, I'm making these weird faces, my eyes are big <laughs> and I don't know. I think I need to look at the rim more because I think it gets the defense to commit to me more, but I'm trying to just see the field, so to speak. I'm seeing one guy come and I'm seeing, you know, yellow jersey cut in corner. And I know that if this guy's coming and that, you know, other defender is helping onto the five, you know, the five's helping on me, you know, my five man's coming middle and the guy's going to help. Then one of those two guys is going to be open and I can still pass, say to the corner. If I know, you know, they're going to hug on the shooter and I can pass to the corner, but then I know that the other guy on the opposite wing is going to be open. Right. So it's just knowing where your advantage is. Again, I think it just goes back to experience and just getting the reps and, you know, it's tough to duplicate in practice here at Alba, you know, we great player development program, you know, use and, and with the pros and Carlos Friday is a big part of that. And we focus so much on making decisions. So everything is, it's not like rote based. It's, you know, making a decision. It's okay. If I'm holding a fist up to the side, it's, you got to go behind the back or you got to pass to this guy or, or whatever. So it's kind of overloading you making a decision in times of stress, yeah. but I think more than anything, it's, you just got to get the reps in, in terms of seeing it and being willing to make a mistake. Cause I think that's when you learn best.
Luke, another area I'd love to ask you about when it comes to post-passing is your thoughts on when you're being doubled. And I'm sure this is, again, kind of a feel thing, which I know a lot of these are with reps. But when you know someone's going to send a double at you, or maybe you don't know they're going to send a double, maybe they come later, different angles, baseline. I guess sort of the progressions you get to, are you trying to split it? Are you trying to spin off it? Are you trying to dribble off and just make the easy pass out? Like, you know, what do you think about when someone's sending a double your way? Yeah. First off, the biggest thing, because what I think most teams try to accomplish with, whether it's just one-on-one pressure or with a double team, is to get you kind of fired up and rattled, right? To heat you up a little bit. So I think the biggest thing is you have to have the patience, A, is being like, okay, under duress. Like, look, you know, you got to be strong enough. Like, they're not going to take the ball from me. Keep it away from the defense. Get your wide stance so that you're not knocked off balance. And honestly, for me, like at this point, like we did it on Sunday, we faced kind of a baseline trap. And sometimes, you know, you make the quick move against the double team to try and attack it before they can come to help. Or, you know, a lot of times I'll just try and kind of, I don't know if this is the right word, but sucker them into coming with the double team. You know, if it's a consistent double team they're coming with and maybe try and draw them to the corner or draw them real to the baseline and passing before they can affect the pass. Because then we got, you know, the four on three. I'm going to usually go to pass first, you know, is try and make the right passing, find a guy open and make sure I have the patience and you know, that depends on the personnel. You know, we have three different five men on my team in terms of styles. We got, you know, offensively, Chris Kamaji, who's 7'4". So, you know, you're going to find him by the rim. Ben Lammers, who's about as automatic as you can get from the free throw line in terms of, you know, elbow jumpers. So I know that's where he is. And we have Oscar Silva, who's got great hands and is, you know, great moving in the paint and, and finishing around the rim. So, you know, maybe it's a little bit more flexible with him, but you kind of got to know your personnel a little bit. You know, my college coach always said the best offense against a double team is to get it close and early and finish just because if you can draw that double team and you can get a good shot up and A, you're going to make it or B, they're going to be committed to you on the double team. You've got the offensive rebound, right? So those are the ones I really go to. But I think the biggest thing against the double team is the patience. You know, worst comes to worst, you get five second call, you know, it's a jump ball, whatever. But like, you know, if they run a double team at you and you freak out and throw a quick pass when your teammates aren't ready or it gets deflected or whatever it is, the double teams have accomplished its job. So, you know, again, that comes with getting comfortable a little bit under duress. And I think that's something you can practice and train a little bit, but I think you can kind of use it to your advantage. Luke, on that baseline double, when they're going to double you from the baseline and you're going to look to score against it, how do you look to attack maybe the baseline double to score? Yes, we see this a lot in the BBLs. They're going to kind of topside you, you know, force you baseline. And so I think the biggest thing is if you can face up, a is getting it as far away from the receiving as far away from the baseline, even if that means going out a little bit more towards the three point line, but to give yourself a little bit more space to operate. If you face up and go baseline, especially if you're facing up against the double team, you can see the rest of your players and what's going to be open. But that double team's coming baseline. And if you attack quick, you're A going to draw a foul off the double teamer, or B, they're going to be too worried about fouling and they're not going to come too hard. So you can kind of split them and get around. It's making sure you keep your balance in terms of getting to the rim. That's the biggest, you know, say it's late shot clock, you know, four seconds, you get a post touch and, you know, the double team's coming is I'm going to go baseline kind of fade away. You know, it's a good shot for me, but also if that double team's coming also from the baseline, you're going to have offensive rebounding advantage. So those are kind of the two things I'll always kind of shade towards trying to make the right pass out of it. But I think those are two kind of viable options. Look, post to post passing, whether you prefer or your teammates prefer when you talk about lobs, bounce passes, or chest passes when it's in a tight area? Is it just, hey, whatever the best pass is, be ready for it? Or not giving away too many of their secrets, but you talk about what kind of passes they should expect so they're not ready for a lob and you're firing it to their chest or a bounce pass or something they're not ready for? I think it depends on the personnel, much like we talked about before, where if you know I got Chris Kumaji who's seven four, like I'm not gonna bounce it to him. I always get mad at my teammates when they bounce him a post pass. Right. It's like why? You know, he's got a height advantage against everyone in Europe. So why are you, you know, rolling a bowling pass to him? But also sometimes it's just, there's just going to be an opening. And, you know, if a guy's closing out to you with high hands, it's a bounce pass. If they're kind of trying to steal the ball, it's sometimes going to be a bullet pass. And coaches, obviously, you know, most of my coaches preach, you know, bounce pass from big to big in the paint just because, you know, there's hands and okay. everything like that. But sometimes that's kind of not the case. And you know, so sometimes I'll get in trouble because I'll kind of fire a quick pass to the other big and they won't be ready for it or won't catch it. And they say, no, you got to bounce past that. And 
that's one of those moments where you got to be like, yeah, you're right, coach. But then you go to your teammate and you go, you're like, look, I know I'm supposed <laughs> to bounce past this, but <laughs> right. you got to be ready and you're going to get a layup. You know what I mean? So I think it kind of depends. And I'm such a like throwing passes to a spot. So I'm not looking for where my guy is, my teammate is necessarily, especially close passes, because you know they can adjust a little bit, but it's kind of where the opening to pass it is. So if the hands are down, it's kind of by their heads or maybe a lob or, or whatever. If their hands up, it's you know a bounce pass or through their legs, to be honest, which I think is a tough guard. You've seen me throwing a couple of those, but you know, no one's practicing that defense, you know, putting the hands between their legs. So it just kind of depends. Luke, I know you mentioned it before, passing and creating becoming a great passer is a lot of five on five and just playing the game. But you do have a creative way of delivering the ball, whether it's, you know, hook passes or, you know, like you said, uh, over the head, all these different ways. You're not just throwing straight chest passes a lot of the time. I am wondering, do you have any sort of warm up drills or do you do things to sort of work on the different angles that you throw these passes at? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think I practice them. My teammates, you know, when we do five on O and I throw behind the back pass, I think they think I'm just showing off but you know because it takes to learn you know the trajectory the pace when you want to throw it and not only that you train your teammates to expect that pass right i think the creative ways because i think i'm much better passing with my right so i think it's a more accurate pass honestly me throwing a behind the back pass than like a kind of hook left you know so if you know i do that sideline out of bounds where i'm at the high post and i'm kind of facing parallel to the sideline and so i can pass over the top right bounce right, you know, using my pivot to kind of create some extension, but you know, they're kind of playing that right side, but that means I have to behind the back is kind of my left-hand pass, you know, to that cutter and I can throw it a chest behind the back pass, you know, or a bounce pass. So for me, it's just kind of a way to, again, kind of throw to where the defense is not. Also another thing I do, and I mean, maybe some teammates and stuff will roll my eyes, but if you're just shooting partner shooting and you're rebounding, much like, you know, you, I'm sure you saw the last dance doc where Dennis Rodman's talking about seeing the rebounds come off the rim, right? Watching and as guys shooting how many spins until whatever. But so I think for rebounding, much like when you're passing that ball back out, it's a great way to just kind of try different passes, work on your left hand sling pass or your bounce pass or a behind the back pass. You may throw a couple ones into the bleachers that, you know, your partners can get a little mad about, but I mean, it's in terms of, you know, being efficient and using every little moment to kind of improve on something. I think that's a great way to, it makes partner shoot a little bit more interesting, I think too. We're going to move on now to another segment that we do here on the show called start sub or sit. And so for those that may be listening for the first time, we're going to give you three different basketball options, ask you to start one, ask you to sub one, and then ask you to sit one, and then kind of give your reason for your answer. We'll have a discussion from there. So pal, let's kick it off. Okay, Luke, our first one, we've talked about it a lot. You've played for a number of different coaches so far in your career. So this question is what you value most from a coach over the course of a season. So start, sub, or sit. Their late game tactics, their understanding of the flow of a season as far as when to maybe push guys, when to back off, running a practice middle of January, or their interpersonal skills, their ability to communicate with their players. I think I'm going to sit end of game situations. I think any, especially nowadays, you can dice up end of game situations so many different ways, but any coach that's been around for more than one season or two seasons, they're going to have their things to do at the end of a game and know how to manage that. The sub, I think I'm going to say, oof, this is tough. It might be a tie <laughs> to be honest, but this <laughs> could create some controversy. I'm going to say number Two is the interpersonal skills. So it easily could be one. And I think that just has to do with me being more of a veteran now. And you kind of know how to, depending on who the coach is to, you know, how you approach, you know, day-to-day work. But having a coach who's great, you know, with interpersonal skills is great with players and and communicating is really big because, you know, that can give you an advantage, you know, in terms of creating good chemistry and getting on the same page, you know, with the players. It's easier said than done. If a coach can really do that and communicate what they want or, you know, what point of the season they're in. That's great. And then I'm going to start uh, understanding the flow of the season. And I think that's more, I say that coming off of nine games in 20 days. So I think that just might be a little more recent, you know, in terms of my memory and especially with our year league season and, you know, we're not traveling charter, we're hopping on Ryanair flights and, and what have you. So it takes a big toll on the body. 
uh, not spending a lot of time at home. Sometimes, you know, we got a week at home in Berlin starting, you know, today. So it's like, you know, it feels like vacation, but, uh, um, you know, our coach is great at understanding that and, you know, the ebbs and flows of the season and you know, injuries are going to happen. Guys are going to be coming back from injury, which are almost more difficult than having guys out. Right. You know, my dad always says everyone thinks it's great to get an injured player back, but it usually gets worse before it gets better. Because, you know, that player has to get comfortable again on the court. Everyone has to readjust, you know, to that player being on the court in different amount of minutes. And, you know, maybe some guy who didn't have to look over his shoulder for a sub before when that player was hurt now has that kind of doubt in his mind. So I think it's a very difficult thing to do. But I think it's something, especially if you play a lot of games that a player really respects in a coach. Let's just start with your start, the flow of the season. From a player's standpoint, when you've played for coaches that you really trust, what is it that they do during the middle of the season that gives you confidence for them as a coach to know that, hey, they're managing our practice flow, they're managing how we feel? Like, Is there something that they have done specifically that's given you confidence in them as a coach that they really understand the pulse of the team? I think a lot of people would say, oh, they ask the players how they're feeling. But I think for me, the biggest thing is kind of just being an open book a little bit. And maybe that's different for high school kids or you know, they're not as mature or whatever you want to say. But you know, as pros, if you're coming off a tough road trip, you got a game, you know, in 48 hours. So you got to come back and practice the next day. You know, you get back late from a trip and the next morning at 11, you got to come practice. I think for a coach to, at the start of that practice, be like, Hey, look guys, I know we're tired. You came off a tough trip, but you know, we need to practice. It's not going to be long. It's going to be, we're going to work on this, this, and this, you know, it makes it so much easier for that player to be like, okay, look, this is what I got to get to today. If we do this, you know, we'll be good. It's not, you know, wondering, Oh, are we going to practice one-on-one full court defense today or what have you? But, you know, being open and honest is huge. Obviously, you know, sometimes asking the players, but I think most coaches do a good job of kind of realizing you know, where their players are at in terms of, you know, fatigue. And, you know, it's obvious when you play nine games in 20 days, guys are going to be a little bit cooked, right? So I think more than anything is is just being open and honest and being like, look, I would love to give you guys a day off, but we got a big game tomorrow that we need to practice for and it's not going to be long and let's do that. Or, you know, guys, we're just going to do video, just a light five on Owens, a workout or... You know, we need to be fresh for tomorrow or, you know, I think it's important we have a shoot around tomorrow just to kind of get the body moving after a long trip. And also we got to talk about a couple of things. It's just kind of cluing the players in and, and making the players feel involved. Luke, just a quick technical follow-up to the practice in between two games. And you mentioned different styles of maybe you do need to practice, you know, coach says we're going to go for 45 minutes or hey, we're just going to do film or 5-1-0. As a player, I know it's probably different depending on the part of the season, but would you prefer a shorter little bit of 5-on-5 just to kind of keep your flow or in between games, are you more film and 510 and keep your body fresh? Depends on how my body's feeling, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> yeah. I think the worst thing, you know, me and my team, I talk about this all the time, is the coaches saying, just go 70% or 60%. Because you're sitting there like, let's either go all out or, you know, 510, like, yeah. you know, no defense or, you know, shadow defense, whatever you yeah. want to call it. Because one guy's 70% is different from another guy's 70%. And also, if, you know, one guy goes 70, the guy he's playing against is probably going to get competitive and go 75 and then 85 and all of a sudden you're some guys are going full on and the other guys are kind of just sitting there like you know what the hell is going on but <laughs> right and with as many games as we play i'm more of a five on oh it's got to be more of a mental focus and giving the guys the time to warm up giving them the opportunity to get some shots up you know we always finish with partner shoot at the end of the practice in between games a lot of times do some five on oh or two on oh you know, working on, you know, sure. certain things that might give us an advantage in the game the next day, but it has to come with trusting your guys a little bit. And, you know, at the professional level, I think it's a lot easier, you know, guys knowing their body and, and knowing they need a little extra work here or, or what have you. And, and if guys want to go a little harder, they'll go play one-on-one, you know, after if they want to guys that don't play many minutes or whatever, but you don't want to mandate so much taxing work, but if guys need it, they can go get it. Look, you're sit the late game tactical stuff as a player end of game when there's a lot of pressure and you know you're trying to get both tactical stuff done slash also try to you know stay motivated whatever it is that is going on in that huddle over the course of your career what have been some things coaches have done in those late game timeouts or huddles that like you just need at the end of a game like do you just need quick tactical stuff do you need some type of rah rah we can do this like what really works for you end of game situation just some show of confidence when it's clear concise ideas right you get the board and you go 
you know, what's worse than like coach down up a play and then ah, actually, you know what, like, let's do this. And you know, you know, if you walk in and I've had a lot of coaches who go, okay, Luke, you're taking it out. Maldo, you're going to be here to try and work for the ball. This is option one, option two, you may have this pass here. And just to be clear and concise, because then when you got that and it's a clear idea, there's no doubt there. Right. And you can worry about, okay, now we got to put it into action. Right. I think it's important to show calm. You know, Aito was the king of that, where sometimes you wonder if he even had a pulse. Sometimes it was like, Aito, we're in, <laughs> you know, the finals game and it's five seconds left. Like, and he's just kind of, okay, we're going to go here. But it kind of calms you down a little bit and shows you have control and makes things clear and concise because there's a million things going on in guys' heads, especially the end of the game, whether it's how you played throughout the game or am I going to make or miss this shot or yeah. am I going to be playing in this last play? So to kind of eliminate the variables and make it pretty clear and concise is important. What really grabs your attention? Because sometimes I think as a coach in a huddle, you're saying something and it looks like the player is just, his head is somewhere else. And you said, you know, clear, concise stuff, but coaches that do a good job of just like bringing you in, giving you like maybe one thing. How many things can you really take from that huddle to go back out to the floor to execute? Yeah, I see it as a player where, you know, someone gets a foul and they're talking with the ref and we're trying to huddle up the team. And I feel like so many times I'm screaming at the guy, Hey, get in here, get in here. You know? And it's like, they got the blinders on because they're so concerned with something. And obviously there's the same problem with the coach where if you see a guy that's kind of, you know, his head somewhere else. And I think maybe a good way to get him back in is, Hey, you want to keep it simple. You don't want to put too much on their plate, obviously. And if you see a guy kind of losing it a little bit, I mean, you can always sub him, which yeah. is good, but to make sure he ask him a question to see if he's engaged and not like, uh, Hey, are you here? You know, be like, Hey, do you want to take out the ball or do you want to be here or here? And it may be a position that's not one of the guys that's going to get that final shot, but you know, make them feel involved. And I know as a player, there's so many times and with so many games that you're sitting there looking at the board is not at the end of the game, but you know, during the game and you got something going on in your head and the coach draws up a play and you break down, you walk out and I'm sitting there like, I have no idea what he just said in that top out. You know, like, I don't know. And I have to go to my teammates and, and ask them, Hey, you know, sorry, what are we, what are we running? And, you know, obviously there's guys that don't realize what we're running or weren't listening and, and they're too embarrassed to ask what we're running. That's just bad for everyone. Right. Cause then they don't know what the hell is going on. But I think, you know, I can fall on the teammates as well. You know, if you good leaders on the team, then they can obviously see that, you know, maybe they can come at them from that angle. Luke, what do you find the value in the player-led huddles, you know, a free throw or a dead ball when you bring the team together? What's the value in that? Yeah, I know it seems kind of corny sometimes, (laughs) to be honest, but I think there's a lot of value in just kind of looking everyone in the eye, right? Especially when a team's going on a big run and, or they make a bad foul or whatever. I'm quick to get everyone in the huddle. And a lot of times I'm not even saying like, you know, what play we're going to run or anything. I'm just like, Hey guys, like they're making a run. Everyone take a deep breath, stay in it and let's go down and and do something. And it kind of just recenters guys and resets them sometime. Mm -hmm. And I think it shows that, Hey, we're still all in here, you know, going to battle it out. I know it's bad in the game when the team goes on the run and usually it's just one guy you got to kind of wrangle in. But when it's like three guys, it's not a good sign. Maybe it's better to take a timeout, but I think more than anything, it's just kind of like the physical everyone getting in a huddle and looking at each other in the eyes and being like, we're still here. We're still going to compete. That's the biggest thing. All right, Luke, our next start sub or sit for you. All right. So this next one is called tough to learn. So it's just a a skill that for you, the start would be the most difficult part of this question to learn. So this has to do with setting an on-ball screen. So tough to learn, start sub or sit, sticking the screen. So actually getting a good angle and, and hitting the guy, flipping the angle of the screen late to give a better angle or slipping it and getting out of that screen? Sitting, slipping, because it's so easy just to run up there and go, you know, screen, screen, and then just run away, right? Uh You know, you see so many guys and, you know, as a four man guarding a lot of spread fours, you can see in the scout, the guys that you're not going to have to guard a pick and roll because they're just going to slip it every time, right? It's pretty easy to do and and guys are just hunting their shot. So I'm going to probably sit that one in terms of it's such kind of limited options, I think, in terms of what you can do as a slip screener. I'm going to sub like just the classic solid pick or stick the screen. And that's not to say it's more simple. I think there's a lot more to it than people realize. I was listening to a podcast of Steve Nash, and he was talking about how he and Amari Stoudemire with the Suns really emphasize screening with the outside shoulder so that it forces the guard to go over the top and get you kind of that, especially in the NBA where everyone's sagging anyways, to get you that downhill. You know, I try and tell my teammates that same thing, right? Especially against the SAG defenses, you know, we got some good ball handlers coming off of it. And if you can get them advantage by screening with that outside shoulder and 
and getting a piece of the guy, but more than anything, making him have to go around and end up trailing. I think it's a little thing. It's a detail that creates a huge advantage. Because not only that, but I, and I tell him for the bigs as well, because then you're opening up that window for the pocket pass and you're creating an advantage. And, you know, we have great passers as guards that'll find you for, you know, an alley-oop or a pocket pass or short roll or whatever you want. So, you know, so many guys, I think, are trained to just kind of go and hit them with the middle of the chest and guys can slide under easy and, you know, it's easier kind of for them to get around or, or the screener, you know, gets caught up on the defender. But I think the great thing about the outside shoulder is it limits your kind of susceptibility to getting caught you know, having to stay there and get caught with, you know, the ball handlers defender, it gives you kind of some flexibility to get out and really get going downhill. So, you know, I still think a pretty detailed thing you can do nuanced, I guess would be the right word thing that I don't think people realize, but sticking the screen would be my sub. And then just for the difficulty of it, I think flipping the screen would be my start. A, you got to worry about making a moving screen. And I think there's a lot of things you can do depending on the situation of how you can make it an effective screen. I guess I'm not really giving away a tip, but like for me, if I know I'm going to flip the screen, I like to do it when the defense is ready. You know, it's like the last play of the quarter or whatever, and they, everyone knows you're going to do a ball screen. And so I'm trying to set it up as a screener and I'll run up and I'll be saying as an offensive guy, hey, screen left, screen left, screen left. But I'm snapping my right hand like on the backside so my ball handler can see it, knowing that I'm going to slip, you know, flip it. And the footwork has to be good. It's got to be concise and efficient to get you there so you're not given the moving screen. And I think it's also reading the situation. Maybe you plan to flip the screen, or maybe you'd see that your guy's right on your tail, ready to do the hard hedge. And so if you can flip it last minute, you've got the whole side free, right? You almost got like a five on three yeah. or, or what have you. So, you know, I think that more in terms of practice and technique is probably the most difficult. Luke, what is the footwork then that you'll use to flip the screen? I think first off for the screen, it's important. Say I'm coming up from the paint, right? And the central ball pick and roll. And I'm going to faking like I'm going to screen on the left side, right? So the defense would be calling out screen left. And so I'm getting there and I'm going like, I'm going to set it, but I'm kind of like moving into U, right? So I'm kind of like, yeah. almost like a, I don't know if it's a dose <laughs> go or I don't know, like a little bit of a dance, like tango where I'm trying to whip to the other side. And I think the most important when you're whipping to the other side is establishing that outside foot. Okay. Because obviously they call moving screen nine times out of 10 because the guy's moving that outside foot and going into the guy and knocking him mm -hmm. you know, towards half court. And so if you establish that right foot, mm -hmm. you can get away with that left foot, you know, maybe not being so established because that guy's going to, you know, come into your chest, but you're not going to be leaning, you know, pushing him out that way. So it's really about getting from kind of doing that 180 U-turn as fast as possible and establishing that outside foot. On that U-turn, is it like a one-two into the screen or are you kind of like a mini hop or like a shuffle? I'm doing a one-two, but kind of sliding that left foot. And it's important that the ball handlers, I mean, I especially do it when a ball handler is, hopefully he hasn't dribbled the ball yet. Okay. You know, because if he's dribbling, that defender's moving and, and it's so much harder. But if that defender's kind of stationary, you can kind of flip it quick. Sorry, I don't know how good that is for a podcast, what, what I was just doing. But. <laughs> for those listening, Luke just got up and gave yeah. us a visual demonstration. That was, just flipped the screen on the chair. And that's the first <laughs> yeah. on the podcast, Luke. That yeah, was good. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm a visual <laughs> learner, man. So that's how I learned. <laughs> Luke, my quick follow-up for you on this one. With your start, you've mentioned a couple of times throughout the podcast about communicating to your ball handler with hand signals or with your hands. So whether it's a pick and roll or whether it's like cutting, how much is that just guys kind of naturally get it? Or do you work on sort of different hand signals with certain guys to communicate on the court? We don't really work on it too much. I mean, obviously there's the classic, like I'm coming for a screen, but I mean, I think the only reason to use this is to make the other team think you're going to screen. I don't think it makes no sense to go like this and actually go set a screen, right? So, I mean, nine times out of 10, if a guy's going like this, he's going to slip it anyway. But it's not something we teach, but I think it's something that's really effective. And it's kind of like a subconscious thing a little bit, much like, you know, when you're in the post showing a hand to where you want the ball, like when you're posting up, because if you're battling a guy here and you know, you're open, but your hands are down and your guard doesn't know where to pass it, like just giving him a hand or like, I'll tell him like, you know, against a mismatch just to remind him, I'll go high, high, high. And I'll point the finger up to throw that lob pass because I don't want them rolling it down there and they can anticipate and try and steal it. You know, I think the use of hands, eyes, I'm a big eyes, face, making weird faces guy. So, you know, it's like a lot of the raised eyebrows, especially when I'm passing the ball and, or kind of using like a little head turn. And that's not something I train to kind of just come naturally, unfortunately to me, but I think it's more of just kind of the chemistry between players. 
on the sticking the screen, when to release out of that screen and maybe just like a mini start sub sit within it. Is it more important to know who you're screening for as far as when you should be getting out of that screen or the defender on ball? Or is it the coverage in general that the defense is playing? I think it's all of them, you know, a stick in the screen. Obviously, you're going to stick the screen way more when you're like when I'm screening for Marcus Erickson, who's one of the best shooters in Europe. I'm going to try and stick the screen. Mm -hmm. And hopefully by then, you know, early I try and stick the screen just to see how the defense is playing. Some guys are going to do an aggressive hedge kind of trap on ball defense. And at that point, if they do that, you, you got to have the faith in your teammate that they're going to be able to talk about holding steady under pressure is then you can slip, right? Because if they're going to double team and you can kind of slip and short roll out of it, that's great. But a lot of teams, they do a hedge, like a short hedge yeah. and then recover. And I found that with shooters, especially teams that like sag, they're like, hey, with Erickson, we got a hard hedge. You know, we got to hedge and recover because he's a good shooter. But they hedge and I still won't move as a screener and then they'll come back. And so sometimes Marcus is looking at me like, roll. And I'm like, oh, just mm -hmm. wait. And they go back and then Marcus comes off with a wide open screen and shoots a three. So it depends where you are on the court as well. You know, most of the time when I'm doing a sideline pick and roll, I'm slipping it because it's so tough to guard. And when you're coming kind of horizontal and then immediately going vertical and have that open baseline, yeah. I think it's so tough to guard and your ball handler has that sideline on his back. So he can't, you know, free side or doesn't have as much room to maneuver. So I think for them, it's better to kind of open up some space. And most of the time you get open, you get the roll, but you know, it depends on the ball handler yeah. too. If, you know, there's a guy, I don't have a lot of confidence in coming off a pick and roll. I'm going to slip as well especially if they're not dribbling, you know, I think it's much easier. They can just hold it and I slip early. They can find yeah. me. But if it's a good ball handler, a good passer off the pick and roll, you know, I'll try and stick it a little bit more and get, you know, like I said, with the outside. So they're coming downhill and we can play a little two man game against the pick and roll coverage. And I definitely won't stick a screen. If, you know, I think the biggest pet peeve is those guards who start coming off the pick and roll before you're set. Yeah. So it's just inviting an offensive moving screen foul for you. So, I mean, most of the time I'm going to slip that. I'm not going to stick that thing because that's just going to put me in trouble and give me a foul trouble. But, you know, it depends on kind of all three. Our last one, we're going to give you a, a defensive question. We've enjoyed watching you guys play this year and especially your pick and roll defense. I mean, obviously you play it, you practice against it. What's the toughest to learn or the toughest to execute for you? Is it chasing over? You're guarding the ball and having to chase over the ball screen. Is it being the quick show, the one-step show out there and recover? Or is it being the third man, let's say that nail help and providing the stunts? on the pick and roll coverage. So we'll go ahead and say it's like our next defense. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Let's go with the next. Which is a little bit kind of unique. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's I'm going to sit being the on ball defender and going over the screen. A, because I don't do it much, you know, as a big man. Yeah. You know, that's more just about being aggressive and, you know, in terms of your footwork and not getting caught up on the screen and kind of just getting over the screen and going, I'm going to sit that one as much as I'd like to start the post guarding the screener. So the short hedge, just as much as I'd like to start it as a big man and looking out for a big man and having so many times, especially against high pick and roll teams that just, you know, you're hedging, you're recovering. <laughs> Hedging, recovering, hedging, recovering, and it gets exhausting for you know us big fellas. None of these are easy by any stretch, but if you get that footwork right, is difficult in realizing you know it's about not so much stretching to try and steal, but you got to really stay attached to your man, and it's just about creating that kind of slight bit of hesitation in the ball handler and forcing them to go around a little bit. And a really underrated, difficult part of that is then getting out of the way so your defender can take up that space that you were occupying, right? So kind of like swinging the door open yeah. a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, at this point, I've kind of learned to, again, we talk about that outside foot is getting that thing back and all depending on how fast my guy's rolling, but I'll grab my teammate and help him try and kind of push through, kind of giving them like a, go ahead and get through there. I'm out of there. That's difficult. I think just because it's not widely seen, you know, we're one of the few teams that kind of does it is I'm going to say that next help is difficult because it's a lot about timing. There is a element of, you can't just do it like a robot, yeah. right? Because teams are going to adjust. Like I remember I was hurt, but our team played against Real Madrid this year and Sergio Yule, who played against next defense, you know, from Pedro Martinez and Aito for a lot of years. So he'd seen it and he would come off slow off the pick and roll to kind of bait and invite the next, you know, forcing them to come a little bit farther, knowing that he's going to pass it and it would create an advantage every time. Right. And they kind of, you know, killed us off of that. So the next couple of days in practice we worked on, you also have to read the ball hand a little bit. And I think the most important thing is a, you have to be in the passing line because if you're just kind of lateral helping, it's just a quick, I mean, any guard worth anything can just make that quick pass and yeah. you're in trouble. So it's recovering that passing line that so that if there is a pass, it has to be, you know, a slower bounce pass or a lob that you can recover to, or you can get your second, you know, help defender to help off and buy you some time. 
more than anything, it's about creating kind of the doubt. So you have to read the ball handler a little bit. So if he's a downhill guy, you can be a little bit more aggressive knowing that he's not going to look to pass that, right? And kind of timing it up so he's surprised when you come for that help. So he looks and he doesn't really see anything. He turns a corner and then all of a sudden this guy's, you know, coming at him and he's, you know, already into his kind of attacking dribble and he has to stop and pick up or throw a quick pass or, you know, crappy pass to someone that hopefully you can get a hand on, you know, knowing there's also some pass first guards that are going to kind of bait you and and look to pass it. So sometimes you got to fake that next help. You said you're reading the point guard. What are you reading? I guess the on ball defender, because obviously if he can get through, you don't want to get stuck over helping or giving too much help it's a great defense but yeah with the big man quick showing recovering the guard getting over and you trying to stunt what are you looking at from your teammates so you're not over helping when it's like no they were through we're good you overcommitted. yeah you know that's a great point if the on-ball defender can get through with no help that's ideal because you can kind of take a couple steps towards it see he's got it handled and can get back Hopefully that your hedger is going to slow him down a little bit. And the faster that on-ball defender can get over it, you know, the better it'll be. You know, some guards are really good at it and kind of putting that on-ball defender on their back. And and that makes it a little bit more difficult. You know, it depends on who you're guarding as well. You know, obviously if you're guarding a good shooter, it's going to be a very short show. Or if they're, you know, cutting 45 or they're cutting from the baseline, you know, those are things that happen. And and that's where our communication on defense comes in. And you hear the guy behind you saying, Hey, there's a guy cutting or we, you know, have our specific calls and you have to turn around Mm -hmm. and and bust your butt back to get there because you're going to have to cover the cutter or you're going to have to get back to the shooter. So a lot of coaches can see it and it's kind of a little bit of a gambling defense. I think some Mm -hmm. would say, you know, it's just because you're committing a guy running halfway across the court and maybe create kind of a little bit disadvantage for you. But if it, when it's done well, it, it really throws off a defense and it's, a, you know, pretty tough to play against. And it's something unusual that's tough to scout for and practice against. If a coach is going to try to run this, I mean, how long does it take to really get comfortable with it, with the stunts and, you know, when to help, when not to help? It's an ever-evolving process for sure. So we ran it with Pedro and now we've run it with Aito and Israel here. And so that's seven years of running next defense. And it's like every year, that first practice, when you start introducing it and you see the new guys looking (laughs) at it, like, what, like, what do we have to do? We have to, you know, run and turn our back to our man and go commit to this. And you kind of have to be like, just trust it. You know, you got to work on it. It's going to get ugly before it gets better. You know, then guys buy into it and kind of becomes a little bit of second nature. And then out of that, you have to learn to we kind of just started out in terms of playing against two stationary weak side defenders. And then it's okay, adding in a cutter and adding in, you know, whether it's from the top 45 or the bottom. And, and so there's obviously progressions yeah. that way and kind of learns to become a feel thing. And I think the biggest thing is a communication. When we're practicing that drill, if it's quiet, it's going to be an ugly long day. So, you know, it's always making sure that guys are talking and, you know, it can never be too much information. Well, Luke, you're off the start, sub, yeah. sit, hot seat. So thank you for. Sweat. (laughs) We're going through that. Those were fun. So thank you for going through all of those. And we got one more question for you before we close. Uh, But before we do, just want to say thanks again for, you know, hopping on your day off. I know it's busy for you right now. So this has been really fun for us. So thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate it. Again, it's it's been a lot of fun, you know, talking some in-depth hoops with you guys. So I, I really appreciate you having me on. So our last question, Lukens, when we ask every guest here is, what's one of the best investments that you've made in your career thus far? I'm not going to go so literal in the sense of you know financial investments in a way, yes, but I think investing in, in your body in terms of recovery, realizing how important the summer is to A, get your body stronger and, and recovered and, and how important it is in, in terms of helping you become a better athlete throughout the season and, and you know, important to ice baths and get treatment and make sure you stay in the weight room, not necessarily to kind of get big, but just maintenance and keeping your body strong and working together. So I think that's been a huge you know step forward in my career that I've made and allowed me to play pretty consistently for the last 11 years now. And I think the second thing is just investing in the relationships with the people you meet, just because, you know, I think there's so many guys that come overseas and they're just there to cut a check. They're kind of there, hey, I'm there to put up some numbers. And then after practice, they go home and sit and play video games or, you know, don't interact with their teammates. And, you know, I think that's one of the biggest things I'll take away from my career is just the people I've met, the experience you have with them. You know, I think being an open person especially with a new team and and being open to new experiences and showing, you know, your teammates and the people in the club that who you are and being able to open up a little bit and seeing who they are and they in turn open up to you and, you know, forms a stronger bond. And, you know, in terms of teammates that can show in terms of the chemistry on court, 
I think that's something, especially where what happens off the court really shows itself on court. And, you know, we've been lucky to have great locker rooms throughout my career with a lot of teammates who I now call very close friends and still keep in contact with and will keep in contact with for the, you know, the rest of my life. So nothing so concrete, materialistic investment, but investing yourself and investing in yourself has been, you know, so rewarding for me. Luke, I just have to ask you a bonus question. You've mentioned your dad here before, and I know that you guys have a relationship and obviously he was uh, your dad, Jack Sigma, a Hall of Fame player. I'm wondering about, you know, the wisdom he's passed down to you or that you've taken from him, you know, knowing him as a player and as a coach over the years. First off, I have to say I've been very lucky. My dad has always been a dad, number one. You know, he's just been a big fan and, and wanted the best for me. He was never, you know, one of the helicopter parents and or anything like that. He gave a lot of trust in my coaches, which was huge and, and shows a lot of about who he is, allowing, you know, maybe someone who's not as qualified as he is or whatever to coach their son and kind of allowing them to do that. And, you know, more than anything, he's just, you know, he's been a great resource to just, you know, talk about, you know, whatever with, be it basketball or not, you know, he's more than anything now, just a huge fan. There was always that kind of last name pressure for me growing up. It wasn't anything crazy, but it never came from him, which was, you know, incredible. You know, people would always see the last name and say, oh, you know, are you going to be as good as your dad? Or, you know, are you going to make it to the NBA or whatever it was? And that quickly faded, you know, once I got into college and kind of made my own name and especially coming over here to overseas and kind of creating my own career over here. And, you know, I've turned my dad into a European basketball fan and, you know, big Alba fan. He's, I've had him navigate, you know, VPNs and, <laughs> and being able to watch my games and sometimes led him to some sketchy sites to try and catch my games. But more than anything, he's just been such a huge support. Love being able to have him on speed dial or, you know, always being able to talk to him and whether it's basketball or, or non-basketball stuff, just being, a, you know, obviously, you know, my dad and a close friend, uh, you know, family and being someone I can talk to has been, you know, so big for me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass.